I hope you'll bear with me this morning as I try to build a bridge uh, somewhat from what we've just heard and for what we've just prayed to this morning's passage in uh, Mark chapter 7. I'm aware that this is going to take a few minutes. It is, it is kind of part of what I'm hoping to communicate to you this morning. So I would ask you to take your Bible, your copy of God's Word. We're going to be a few different places, um, and it might be helpful if you go there with me, even prior to us getting to our primary passage. Um, I'll begin in uh, Romans chapter 9, ask you to turn to Romans chapter 9, verse 4. And as you're turning there, uh, let me say this. 9, 10, and 11 of Romans is a unique section within Romans where, where Paul is asking a lot of questions, not least of which is this, has God's word failed? And it's, it's as if he is trying to help us all understand theologically, if this is, is this why there is such a vast rejection of the gospel? by his Jewish brothers and sisters at the time and currently. After all, to them, our, uh, the children of Israel, the children of promise, those descendants of Abraham, it had been given what Paul described in Romans 9, where you are, verses 4 and 5, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, he says. So, nonetheless, although he wrote of his great sorrow and his unceasing anguish in his heart over the lostness, I'll put that in quotes, the lostness of his people, he turned to Scripture the, old, the, the whole canon of the Old Testament up to that point to explain how the, the hardness of the hearts of his people towards Christ was by the hand of the Lord. And it was by the hand of the Lord so as to bring about the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. So of Israel's unbelief, and really as well as the glorious mystery of the gospel itself, Paul wrote, he continued to write in Romans chapter 9, verse 30 through 32. Glance down there with me if you would. That Gentiles, that's us, who did not pursue righteousness, they have obtained it. That is, righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why, he asked? Because they did not pursue it, here's the key, by faith, but as it were, based on works. And then he continues to write this, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Pastor Mark alluded to this in his prayer time with us. So hear this, just kind of synopsis of things you know, I'm just trying to remind you of these things. The trespass of the children of Israel would mean this, it would mean riches, for the Gentiles, the rejection of the gospel by the children of Israel, it opened something up. And it opened up kind of this, this what amounted to a, a back door of access to the Gentiles. And I want to be careful when I'm using the word back door. Okay, so, so what I don't want you to hear when I use the term back door is plan B. 
But what I do want you to hear is God's sovereign plan that has existed since the, before the foundation of the world. I want you to hear that God has always had this plan and he instituted it at the time of Paul. So, and, and I'm sharing this with you to, to do a few things. I, I want to increase your joy in your salvation. I want you to be overwhelmed and, and have your affections for God increased. I want to increase your sense of wonder in his goodness. And I want to increase your sense of really passion to share such good news to the peoples of the nations, and even as we intercede and pray for Dr. Frampton uh, until he returns, and, and really for the rest of his ministry as he's pouring into a people that need to hear the same gospel that we've responded to. The plan of God that opened a door for salvation to Gentiles through the rejection, the religious rejection of the Jewish people it also provided. So there was also provision made, um, whereas the, the means by which the mercy of God that has been shown to us would also be shown to them. And to that I just say, thanks be to God. Flip, flip the pages of your Bible over to Romans chapter 11, verses 30 through 32. <clears throat> And we see how this will unfold. Let me just read this passage. To the Gentiles in Romans 11, 30, 32, Paul wrote, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, don't forget who he's talking to, to you Gentiles, they also, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. No wonder Paul, after explaining all of this fully, which I've just kind of touched upon briefly, right? He can't help but burst out into praise for the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Look down at the last verses of chapter 11, for starting at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Listen to this last line. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Indeed, to God be the glory that from him came Jesus, the author and perfecter, the finisher of our faith, and his gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. To the Jew first. Land on that for a second. And also to the Greek. So I confess. I confess to having more than one reason in taking this detour trip through Romans 9 and 11. Albeit briefly. In many ways, what I have just shared with you as a, a kind of a theological flyover 
is an explanation of what is going on in our next section of Mark. So what we're about to read in Mark is, is the, the, I won't say the genesis, but it is the uh, practical fleshing out of Jesus starting what we now know to be true was going on as we've just seen in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Okay, so I'd like for you to keep what we prayed for, what we know Dr. Frampton is doing right now in the evangelization of his, our Jewish friends, brothers, and sisters. We're praying for the peace of Jerusalem, not just that there might be a cessation of war, but that our, our brethren might know Christ as Savior, right? And as a result of that, in the promise of the unfolding of the mystery of the gospel, we believe that to be, that's, that's happening and that's going to happen, right? And also, I want and I hope that this walk through Romans 9 and 11, a reminder of the goodness of God and the mystery of God and the vastness of his thoughts and ways and bringing about all of this has not only been edifying for your soul, but also helpful for our understanding of this text. Okay, So pardon the interruption, pardon the baritone nature of my voice. It's been a fun week, but I haven't had the most amount of sleep. So look with me at Mark chapter 7. <clears throat> So Mark 7, verses 24 through 30, is our passage this morning. I've, I've truncated it from there. I'm not going to go into 31 through uh, 37 because of what I just shared with you uh, time-wise. But let's read the entirety of our section and passage this morning before walking through it. This is the word of the Lord. Here it is from him. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the, the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the child lying in the bed, and the demon gone. May the Lord add richly to the reading of his word and cause it to land in our hearts where he prepares the soil that it might bear much fruit. Let's walk through this, uh, through a series of just little one word headings that I'm giving you to break this story down into chapters, as it were. The first is this, retreat. You'll see this in verse 24, retreat, with hopes of going unnoticed, right? Jesus led his disciples away from where he had been ministering directly into Gentile country. And our passage opened up with the words, and from there. 
So if you were here with us last week, you know that Pastor Mark led us through another passage where Jesus was vehemently opposed. He's opposed once again by the Pharisees and actually um, some some people that they brought along with him as reinforcements, right? So they they bring some scribes from Jerusalem just to kind of help double down on their opposition against Jesus. And Mark's sermon last week laid out Jesus' teaching on the human heart and how it's not what goes into a person that defiles him, but what defiles a person is that which comes out of his heart, the the center being, the, the seat post of the the human person. If you weren't here, I want to just encourage you to go back and listen to that message um, and so you can kind of catch up with what was there, but it was just most edifying to hear uh, the gospel proclaimed last week through that passage. The passage that he covered last week and the passage that I've just read are best understood when coupled together. So after that opposition, which he talked about last week, that Jesus had received from the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem, Jesus left the area and he went to a place called Tyre. And he's really the region of Tyre and Sidon. These are, these are two cities, coastal cities, um, on the wet, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Let's talk about Tyre for just a second. Let me offer you just a, a brief background on Tyre. And I'm doing so to kind of set the table so you'll know kind of the climate about what's going on in Tyre. What would have been normative for centuries in Tyre? Tyre, uh, also this is kind of modern day Lebanon, right? Which it lay directly west and north of the Sea of Galilee. It was a Gentile region and it had a long history of antagonism to Israel. The region of Tyre, uh, formerly referred to, prior to that day, formerly referred to as Phoenicia, that's what we saw about this lady, had been the home of a famous queen. This is the former home of Queen Jezebel, right? If you'll remember your Old Testament days, in the days of the prophet Elijah, um, it was Jezebel who ushered into northern, um, the northern kingdom, the northern portion of uh, uh, Israel. She had ushered in really the most heinous of pagan prophets and the most heinous kind of diabolic uh, practices into that kingdom. So you've got that going on. And what was planted then is kind of taking root and becoming a tsunami of waves of practical fleshing out in the days then of Jesus. Old Testament prophets spoke harshly against the wealth and the terror that would come out of Tyre. Um, And during the second century, so not Jesus' day, but just soon after Jesus' day, maybe you've heard of the Maccabean Revolt. If not, it's, it's fine. All I want you to hear about this is that Tyre, the people of Tyre, joined that revolt and fought against the Jews. So there was a historian who wrote uh, vastly about the things of Israel, and his name was Josephus. And Josephus, uh, as the historian wrote, that the inhabitants of Tyre were, and here's his words, were notoriously our bitterest 
enemies. So get the feel here for where Jesus has taken his disciples. All that to say, I mean, it's, it's one thing for the Messiah of Israel to go to Tyre and lay the smack down, right? But it's, it is totally unacceptable for the prospect of him to go there and show kindness. In our passage, in our text, you'll, you'll see also some interesting words. He entered into a house and he did not want anyone to know. I want to talk just a brief moment about the purpose of this secrecy. It's not the only time you've seen that. In fact, you'll see it again in uh, our study of Mark. But does it seem strange to you that Jesus didn't want anybody to know that he was in town? I mean, like I said, it's not the first time we've seen it. It won't be the last time. Last week, in addition to the opposition from the Pharisees, we saw that even his disciples needed to come up to Jesus and, and, and ask, hey, what did you mean by that parable that you just said when you spoke to the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem? And, and he, they're, they're constantly having to come up to him and ask these questions. You'll see this in Mark chapter 7, verse 17 and 18. If you've got your Bible open, you can look over there. Right there is where it says, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? So you've got a lot of things going on there before he leaves for Tyre. And given given the disciples' failure to understand, Jesus would often get them alone take them away from the setting, get them separated from the crowd and the peoples so as to instruct them in what he wanted them to know about the kingdom and the gospel. Now, over in Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 32, you'll see this explicitly explained by Mark. Here's what he says in that passage. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. So this is another occasion where he's doing this exact same thing. And he did not want anyone to know. Why? For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. What I'm wanting you to see is that, yeah, it could be that Jesus is wanting a little respite, a little cessation from all of the opposition, but primarily what Jesus is doing here by getting him out of this scene, his disciples out of this scene and into this other region, which happened to be tired. We're not told why he goes there. The story is going to give us a clue, but we're not told why he went there, um, is that uh, he's wanting to get away with his disciples to do some more teaching. However... His secret is not safe, right? Nor is his purpose for being in pagan Gentile land limited to a retreat with his small group. So check out what continues to happen. No sooner had he arrived in Tyre than a a woman with a desperate need seeks him out. The text, which I've, I've shown you and read, says this, but immediately... A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. 
you remember another time in our study when a desperate parent approached Jesus and asked him to take care of their daughter? Of course you do, right? The contrast between the two experiences of two parents, one's a dad, one's a mom, it, 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 it should be evident to us. I mean, it, it kind of leaps off of the page for us. You've got one who's a, a man, he's an insider, and he's a leader of the synagogue. And on the other side, you've got this woman who's an outsider, and she's a pagan Gentile. This is not only supposed to be evident to us, but we're supposed to see the extreme pictures of contrast between the two. Quoting James Edwards here, who writes this about this contrast and this, this parallel picture of these two parents, he writes this. And that guy's name, if you'll recall, was Jairus. He writes this. <clears throat> Despite Jairus's enviable qualifications, he's the president of the synagogue. He's a man. He's a man of authority. Despite Jairus's enviable qualifications, however, he does not hold an advantage with Jesus. For the woman's deficit with regard to her qualifications will be compensated for by her depth of faith. For all their differences, both supplicants, so both petitioners, both people who came to Jesus with request, Jew and Gentile find fulfillment in Jesus. For Jesus sees not human status, but human need. And therein lies the point of this entire passage. Let's move now to verse 25 and 26, where we'll see the request. Now the woman was a Gentile a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. I've alluded to this already, but I just will point it out now that this woman has four strikes against her. Whether it be baseball, kickball, or wiffle ball in our country, three strikes and you're out. This lady has four strikes going against her, and it meant that the litany of her deficit kind of reaches this crescendo in this verse here, right? We, she's a woman. She is a Gentile. She is Syrophoenician by birth, and she has a daughter with an unclean spirit. We aren't told what the response is from the disciples, but you can imagine, well, I want you to imagine, given where they are, Tyre, this, this locale, that is their, their enemies, this, this pagan wasteland. Um, and given who she is, that they would have fully expected Jesus to respond and say, listen, woman, you need to talk to the left because you're not right. I don't know if Jesus would have used that phrase or not. But at the very least, she would, he would have shut her down completely. Right? This would have been her, their expectation. And initially, that's what it looks like he's doing. Notice verse 27. We've seen the request, and now we see Jesus' flat-out refusal. I know we're in Mark, and you don't need to turn to where I'm about to say, but Matthew records this same story. 
And from Matthew's version of this story found in Matthew 15, we learn that at first, Jesus didn't even respond to the woman. He doesn't even give her a response. She comes up, falls to her knees, begs this request, and he doesn't even answer her until she persistently pleaded for mercy. And I hope to bring that to an applicational end at the end about our prayer life and persistency in prayer. Matthew chapter 15, verse 23 says this, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him. Notice the two, two groups of people begging, disciples begging, she's begging. His disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. It is interesting to me how the woman is begging for mercy while his disciples are begging him for a break. Mark only records Jesus' initial refusal. We don't get this back and forth of waiting, ignoring, her continuing to ask in Mark's gospel. We only get this initial refusal. Look at verse 27 and you'll see it. What he says to her, and it, it will sound harsh. It is harsh. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now Jesus is using this word technon for children or for child. It's plural in this sense, but it generally refers to son or daughter, children of any age. Jesus is saying, let my children, let the children be fed first. As if to say, hey, my kids are the ones to be served, right? That's who I came here to serve, and my kids are going to be served first. Then Jesus gives his rationale for his refusal by saying the next portion of verse 27. Look at that. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. How harsh is this? For the sake of time, and I don't have a lot of time to linger here, let me just say this generally about this expression, dog. How it would have been heard in the ears of Everyone, depending on what word you used for dog at the time, but in general, um, it, it, it was, I will just it suffice it to say, it is no term of endearment in Jesus' day, right? In fact, this, the term dog um, was reserved for one of the strongest kinds of insults you could make. I mean, think back, old, let's go back to Jezebel, for goodness sakes. It was dogs. I'm just going to say it. It was dogs that lapped up the flesh of Jezebel when she had been thrown from her window, trampled by horses, and left there on the ground. And that's how it was said that she was going to die. And it came to fruition, but it was dogs. The, the, these scavenger, dirty creatures in their day, and that's how they were seen. This has given a lot of occasion and rise for some liberal theologians to say, see, Jesus, in his response, sinned. Quite on the contrary, he is, he is perfectly without sin. So to think that, 
would be a continuation of uh, an attack against him that is totally unwarranted. Um, he is not being slanderous with his comment. It would be incorrect to think so. Um, but I, I would just kind of say this. He, he uses the term dog, and he does so in a diminutive form, which probably, I mean, they didn't have pets like we do as many and as, as cherished and treated well as, as we kind of, I think, frankly, probably idolize our pets, unfortunately. Um, I hope not, but maybe so. Uh, but in the way that he refers to her as dog, is probably referring to a, a small dog and even one that lived maybe in the home with him. I mean, why else would this dog be at the base of the table eating crumbs from the children? One conclusion, one thing that helps me arrive at that conclusion is we'll see from her response that there's no offense taken. She doesn't say like, how could you? What, what are you? How could you call me that? Um, in fact, she then, in response, refers to herself in like manner. Okay, So there's something being communicated to us with what he is saying to her, and I want you to funnel it in light of our discussion that we had in Romans 9 through 11. Hang with me. Verse 28, we see Jesus's, I'm sorry, we see her rebuttal. Notice what happens. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I'll just give you a little illustration about the dog that lives at my house. <clears throat> Our dog, Fisher, just kind of got free reign of the home when we're present. And when we sit down at our dining room table to eat, whether any of the meals, He'll kind of make his way over to my side of the table and sit in the corner and just kind of lie down there while, so he's close to us while we're eating, right? He doesn't eat people food unless one of our grandchildren happens to be eating with us. Then the occasional bit of food might hit the ground and he realizes what he's been missing, right? But by and large, he doesn't eat our food. With her response and her rebuttal, her rebuttal does more than tell us that this is probably a small welcome dog rather than a, a street scavenger dog that Jesus could have been referring to. Her rebuttal communicates back to Jesus that she understands that Jesus' mission is intended for the Jewish people first, but that the vastness of what he has brought to the table is so wonderfully glorious and so wonderfully life-giving that even the dropped morsels, and think of the dropped morsels if his glory could be dropped morsels, but allow me to kind of go there, that the dropped morsels of his glory and his goodness, even the dropped morsels would be sufficient to feed the nations fully. She knew that a spiritual crumb from Jesus would be more satisfying than all the delicacies that the world could ever offer. This continues to be true. 
she, in the crumb from Jesus' table, about which he's speaking, has found the pearl of great price. God's intention from before the foundation of the world was that the gospel would be served to his chosen people first. The the promise of being brought into relational uh, restoration with God the Father, that promise was to be offered and issued to his chosen people first, but that it would extend. This was part of his plan from day one. This is, this is how Adam and Eve were to be the image bearers for the entire world. But they fell short of that, right? And until David's root would come around and through Jesus, that message and ministry and mystery would be extended to the nations. But that gospel message would extend. Think about this. Think crumbs from the table feeding the dogs below. Extend. Plentiful feast on top. So plentiful that the goodness of it feeds the nations. So that the nations, like the Jews, who are saved by faith, could eat to the full. I keep using that language, and I want, you to, I want you to grab hold of it. Because this story of the, the commended faith of this Syrophoenician woman serves as a bridge in between two other stories of Mark that we've seen. And in fact, I believe it was Pastor Bill who preached on the feeding of the 5,000. The, the, the number of the men of the 5,000 Jewish people who were fed and what happened at the end of that meal? First off, as a result of that miraculous meal, they were all fed. And at the end of it, there was plenty of leftovers. On the other side of this chapter, that happened in chapter 6. Then we've got our story in chapter 7. In chapter 8, there's going to be another miraculous feeding. Who will be fed? The Gentiles of the region of Decapolis, 4,000 men. What's going to happen as a result of that miraculous feeding? They're going to be fed, and there's going to be so much food there, they're going to eat to the full, and there will be leftovers. Seven baskets, I believe, to my memory. Both of these things have this going on. And then you have here this foreign pagan woman whose daughter is um, uh, forgive me, suffering from an unclean spirit who realizes he walks into this, she walks into this conversation, throws herself down before Jesus and begs for help and he says let the children eat first. Notice verse 29 and 30. This recognition of Jesus. <clears throat> and he said to her, for this statement. There are no less than three things that are unique about this woman in this story. The first thing that's obvious is that Jesus has now publicly commended her 
Not for the outside of her cup. Think last week's sermon. Not for her ability to live up to externals. But he is commending her for her faith. Matthew's version of this story adds this. Jesus said to her after her comment, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. So that's the first thing. Jesus has now commended her publicly for her faith. The second thing is this. She is the first person that you and I have encountered in our study of Mark to hear and understand the parable of Jesus. In a one-sentence parable from Jesus, her response has her jumping herself into the parable and responding in kind by faith. Have you noticed this? She's saying, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs can have their fill of the crumbs that fall from the master's table. What is she saying? She's saying, I know who's supposed to eat at the table, but I also know that there's plenty of you and plenty of your goodness and plenty of your glory that by faith, it can feed me and I can eat to the full. The gospel, people, is for us as well. It is not limited to us. But it is for us, specifically this morning. It is for you. And it is for you to take by faith. Third little thing that is unique about this woman and the story I've just alluded to is that her miracle is also the only one that Mark mentioned that Jesus performed at a distance without seeing the afflicted person, without speaking or uttering a command, or without anything. He simply says to her, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And what'd she do? She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The story has a lot to do with what we saw in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Jesus' ministry was to His people. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He, He mobilized a group of men, His disciples and others with the Great Commission so that they could take the, the delicacies of the table and not slop them down haphazardly upon the floor, but to know that it is to be shared with the nations and the peoples. He is enacting not enacting, that's a, that's, that's a bad connotation word. He is, he is employing that which was to be true as the fulfillment of the gospel. It is the power of salvation for all who believe and who all, for all who believe by faith. The Jew first and then to the Greek. So we pray. We pray that the nations would respond to this gospel. We pray that the nations would have preachers who would articulate the gospel of Jesus in their hearing. We pray for Ed, who is currently doing that very thing 
And we pray with great expectation and without ceasing, with persistence. We don't let the, the, the perceived silence of our request stop us from continuing to pray. As we're praying according to His will, we keep asking, Lord, save the Jewish people. Lord, save the people of Tashikistan. Save the people of, save the people of Ringgold, Georgia. Because we trust that your invitation to drink and eat and be satisfied is for the nations, that they might be filled. And when we come to this woman, we don't just see a woman who had the wrong credentials. We see a woman who had faith. And Jesus commended that faith. And Jesus acted in kind. For whom are you praying? For whom have you given up on praying for? May you cease from your giving up on praying and be renewed in your fervor to pray. And finally, one more thing. If you're in this room this morning and you're hearing this, this talk of the gospel and this man Jesus and you don't know anything about him, can I just tell you that he is the Son of of the Most High God who agreed to be sent on a mission to this earth so that in that mission he might live sinlessly and perfectly, not only communicating the message of his Father, but doing the work and will of his Father, which culminated in his offering of himself in sinless perfection as the willing and acceptable sacrifice for the sins of men and women so that those who believe by faith that what he did on the cross can be applied to your sin debt you can be saved by faith be like this Syrophoenician woman receive him by faith today trust him and be saved and satisfied to the full let's pray Heavenly Father, I thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the life He lived and the price He paid. And thank You that it is made available for those who trust by faith in the finished work of the cross. Lord, I pray that if there are people in this room who have not yet believed by faith in You, that today would be that day of their salvation. That they would, as this lady did, bend their knee before you and beg not only for the things they have need of in their lives, but primarily for their salvation. That they would repent from their sin, confess you as Lord and Savior, and be saved. Thank you for the promise that for those who are in Christ, they are made new creation, creations, and that the old has passed away, and behold, all things are made new. We celebrate this. We celebrate you in the gospel. And we thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.